You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Genesis chapter 18 is where we will begin today. We'll start reading there in verse 1, and it says, And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. While I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three CAs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind them. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. You'll remember last week we looked at um, God revealing himself once again to Abraham and uh, clarifying again the promises that he's making to both he and Sarah. We saw the, the name change that took place last week as God reveals himself in a new way as the God Almighty. Uh, He reveals Abram and Sarai as individuals that would need a name change, and it reflects a character change in them, but also solidifies the promises that God has made to them. Abraham becoming a father of multitude, Sarah becoming that princess who will eventually produce kings of nations uh, after her. Uh, We also saw God clarify again that it's Isaac, that would be the promised son, that Ishmael, while a descendant of Abraham, would receive blessing, but not the covenant blessings that we had been talking about and that God had been revealing to Abraham. We also looked at the sign of the covenant last week, the the importance of circumcision and and what it pointed to and um, how it was an outward identification with the covenant, that it was for both Jews and Gentiles at the time that Abraham was to perform this act upon individuals that came into his fold even if they were not direct descendants of his Uh, we saw that he actually circumcised everyone with him at the time as a as an act of faith we also talked about the act of faith that abram would have to have in in clarifying his new name with other people Um, that he was to be a father of a multitude uh, is what god was promising to him and uh, we saw last week kind of a point of application is that we must trust that god is mighty all of the time whether he delivers from evil or works evil for good. So we were talking about God being a God of the impossible and that there are things that we we desire for God to do, things that we want God to do. And God has revealed himself in scripture as a God who can do miraculous things. But we talked at the end last week that there are times when God seemingly doesn't come through for us. And it's not because he's incapable of doing certain things. It's not that he's incapable of healing somebody with a, 
uh, a disease that takes their life. It's not that he's incapable of protecting a pastor's wife in Indiana when somebody breaks into their house. It's not that God's incapable of doing those things. God, God performs those things all the time. He heals people and he protects people and spares people. And, and God does miraculous things. But we argued last week that it's no less miraculous for God to take an evil situation and, and turn it for good. That it requires a God of, of equal power to work miraculous things, but also a God of equal power to work evil things for good uh, in the lives of his children. And so we serve a God that oftentimes comes through and delivers in a way that, that, that causes awe by us as we see him heal people and rescue people and save people. But then there's also times when he doesn't come through in ways that we would want or expect. And, and it's no less miraculous for him to, to hold back some of that provision that he has in order to then turn an evil situation for good. Um, and so we wrestled through some of that last week, and I encourage you to be challenged in that area, that we serve a God that we can trust all the time. This week we look at, uh, again, God revealing himself in a way where nothing is too hard for him to accomplish. Our summary sentence for today, God makes great and precious promises to us and expects us to believe every one of them because nothing is too difficult for him to accomplish. All right, God reveals great and precious promises to us all through scripture. We could just rattle off promise after promise after promise that God makes in scripture. And he expects us to believe every single one of them. He expects us to believe every single one of them. Because nothing is too difficult for him to accomplish. You know, sharing with you earlier, God has called the local church to be a place that is equipped with leadership that through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the gifting of the Holy Spirit, that leadership is empowered to raise up individuals and to equip them to do the work of the ministry. So for me to question or to doubt or to have a level of unbelief that says, I don't know if God is capable of raising up individuals to be pastors within our church that can be sent out to plant other churches that's, that's a failure on my part to believe the plans of God. Because God has, has, has revealed his local church to be a training ground where he equips leadership with the giftings of the Holy Spirit to raise up individuals to do the work of the ministry. God makes great and precious promises and he reveals those in scripture and he expects us to believe them. He doesn't just make promises and reveal promises and then uh, leave it up to us if we want to believe or not to believe. He expects us to believe these things because he reveals himself in a way that teaches us that nothing is too difficult for him to accomplish. Some introductory notes for us this morning as we jump into the narrative here in Genesis chapter 18. A um, couple things here for us to consider. First of all, I think there's a twofold purpose in this visit. You may be asking why is God having to once again come and talk about these same promises again? He just did it in Genesis 17. Why does he need to come once again and basically give the exact same information? I think, first of all, he's coming to reaffirm his plan for Isaac, but this time specifically to Sarah. Okay, We're going to see in their conversation that, that one of the visitors calls, uh, calls out where Sarah is, wants to know her specific location, determines that she's close enough to hear the information so that she can now participate in the covenant promises and know that they apply to her. Twofold purpose, to reaffirm God's plan for Isaac, specifically to Sarah, 
And then as we're going to see in the conclusion of chapter 18, it's also to come with the intent to judge Sodom. And then through God and and Abram's conversation also to deliver salvation to people in Sodom as well. So after this conversation, we didn't read all the way through chapter 18, but after this visit with Abraham and his tents, two of these visitors go down to Sodom and, and begin to call people to salvation there to be rescued from God's judgment coming upon that city. Which then poses the question, who are these people that come to Abraham to visit with him? It says, and the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. So we're, we're, we're told, and the indication is that the Lord appears to him. How? He lifts up his eyes and looks, and behold, three men are standing in front of him. So who are these visitors? How does the text reveal them? I believe one of these individuals is the pre-incarnate Jesus. Um, that, that this is God in human form. Uh, prior to the, uh, the birth of Christ in the New Testament, I believe one of these visitors is Jesus. Okay, I'm going to give you a couple of textual reasons for that. One, in verse 1, and the Lord appeared to him by the, mo- by the oaks of Mamre. So, so obviously God is at work in revealing uh, here. But in chapter 18, verse 13, it says in the context of Abraham talking to these individuals... Verse 13, the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Um, so the, the author Moses uh, identifies one of these as the Lord. Verse 17, the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Okay, it says in verse 16, then the men set out from there and they looked down towards Sodom and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. And then that statement, the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham? Okay, so I believe one of these is God himself. All right, I believe the other two are angels accompanying God in this mission in uh, chapter 18, verse 22. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Okay, so two of them, or so the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. We learned down in chapter 19, verse 1, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. So it looks as though the group breaks up here and two head down to Sodom and one stays and continues to converse with Abraham about what the fate of Sodom looks like. Okay, Um, some people would say this is a revelation of the Trinity, that we have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit present here. I would lend more again towards this being God in human form accompanied by two angels that will eventually make their way down to Sodom. Okay? Um, so just to give you a little bit of insight into who these visitors uh, may be. As we jump into the text now specifically, um, we have Abraham in chapter 18 here relaxing in the, in the afternoon. Uh, and he's uh, visited by these individuals. And I think there's two calls that we can see here. In our notes, first of all, a call to hospitality. Now, I don't believe what happens here is a main point of the text, but I do think it is worthy of some consideration. I think it's worthy of consideration because the New Testament, I believe, refers back to this in Hebrews chapter 13. Verse 1, let brotherly love continue. Verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Okay? Um, so there's the appeal in the New Testament to be, to be ready, to be prepared, 
to be hospitable uh, because you don't always know who you're entertaining. Now, I don't know how often this this would happen, how often we could expect to to interact and to entertain angels. It may be completely minimal that this ever happens. It, it may be that it happens far more than, than we believe. Um, but it is here in the New Testament for us. It's a call and a reminder. I believe that when Abraham starts this discussion, he doesn't have any idea that these are supernatural visitors. I think this is a response by him, a cultural response by him, that when strangers come and visit that are traveling from city to city, that your uh, your... Uh, your act as a human being is to show hospitality to these strangers, to these visitors, okay? And so I believe Abram is responding somewhat here in a cultural uh, mindset to extend hospitality to these people. Um, He demonstrates haste in how he responds to them. This isn't something that uh, he has to reconcile and decide if he really wants to do. It says that, when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O oh Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. All right. Uh, there's at least probably some strong indication here that he viewed these individuals as superior to him. Now, again, whether he understands them to be supernatural or not, we don't know. The text doesn't really say. But there's probably some indication here that these are, are individuals of superiority to him. Or at least he treats them in that way and, and, and admonishes them to come and to stop and to pause and to refresh themselves in his uh, settling there. It says that, um, verse 4, Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. All right, so he demonstrates haste, he recognizes their needs, and he intentionally seeks to meet their needs, right? He comes to them, and, and rather than just saying, do you need anything, he identifies what they most likely do need. He says, I'm going to get you some water, I'm going to get you cleaned up, I'm going to give you the opportunity to wash your feet. For us, this may be a, a situation where we extend our bathroom, I'm going to give you an opportunity to take a shower, uh, to clean up, to refresh yourself, all right? He extends water, he extends the opportunity to get cleaned up, he extends a place to rest, um, rest yourselves under the trees while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on. And so he also extends the opportunity uh, to have food uh, administered to them. Okay, so he identifies some felt needs here. He says, I'm sure you're tired wherever you're journeying from, wherever you're going, because he anticipates that they're going to pass on and continue wherever it is they're traveling to. But he wants to be hospitable. He wants to extend hospitality. And he's got uh, resources to pull from. I'm going to give you water. I'm going to make sure that you're washed and cleaned. I'm going to give you a place to rest. And I'm going to give you food to eat. Now, it should probably stand out to us that as he begins to extend this offer to them, what he actually ends up giving them far exceeds what he initially tells them that he's going to give them, right? He basically says, I'm going to pull, you know, kind of pull some stuff that I've got laying around. I'm going to give you some, um, a morsel of bread, give you some water. What we find is that he really, I mean, he just opens up a spread for him. It says that, um, uh, verse 6, And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds, uh, which I, I guess is like a type of yogurt, or, or, or basically the fatty part of the milk. I mean, it, it was, a, it was a, a delicacy for them. Um, it doesn't sound great to me, but, um, this would have been a, a, a great offer to them and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. 
And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. So in your notes there, I put Abram demonstrates uh, haste. You know, he's very quick to respond to this need. When a need poses itself, he jumps on it. He extends generosity here. Not just the, the basic stuff that he has lying around, but he really goes uh, to great lengths to take care of these people. And then he demonstrates humility. Abraham is a wealthy man, right? He's a wealthy man. He's got servants. We know Eleazar is one of his high servants. Sarah has servants. Hagar being her highest servant. He's got people that could tend to all of this. But what the text tells us is that he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Abraham takes on the responsibility of serving these people. He doesn't engage in eating with them. He doesn't put himself above his servants. I mean, he jumps right in and becomes a servant in the midst of this. Okay? Um, again, I don't think that, that this is a huge focus of the text. I think this is setting up the conversation that flows from it. Um, but I do believe it gives us some implications for us as believers. First of all, how we serve others reflects how we serve God. How we serve others reflects how we serve God. Nobody in here may ever entertain an angel, much less the Lord Jesus Christ in their house, right? Probably never Jesus Maybe an angel because Hebrews leaves it open to the possibility that you may entertain an angel unaware. Most likely, though, I, w- I would probably lend towards thinking that most of us will never experience that. But Matthew 25 reminds us that when we serve other people, specifically less fortunate people, it's as though we are serving Jesus. Right On Judgment Day, Jesus is going to commend those that that took care of the poor, that visited those in prison. And he says, you did this unto me. And the people are confused. How did we ever do that for you? When you do it to the least of these, you've done it to me. Okay, so even if these people had not been supernatural visitors to Abraham, his hospitality and his generosity is a form of serving Christ by reaching out to those in need. Okay, and it's a reminder to us that we're called to do the same thing. Um, And again, not just if it is an angel, Although Hebrews 13.2 says it's a possibility that we would entertain angels at some point. But in Romans chapter 12, uh, verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Um, a responsibility for us to seek opportunities to do this. In First Peter chapter 4, verse 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. All right, Abraham again demonstrates haste in how he shows his generosity and how he shows his hospitality. In uh, 3 John, verses 5 through 8, Beloved, is a faithful thing you do in all of your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. So when you have opportunities, Christians that are coming through your area, the opportunity to extend your house, to extend your resources, uh, to help take care of them. You'll remember a couple years ago, we had the chance to do this when a youth group was coming from South Georgia, going to Snowbird to stay for the summer, needed a place to stay overnight. We were able to extend hospitality through our church. We let them stay in our building. We had food prepared for them that was here when they got here. Um, We had several people open up their homes for for showers, opportunities for them to clean up. That was an example of of, uh, applying 3 John 5 through 8. We saw people that were uh, gospel people, believers that were doing the work of the ministry. We were able to extend hospitality to them as a church. Oftentimes, we're presented with needs 
where we specifically individually as a family can do this type of thing for other believers as well. Um, we have a responsibility to show hospitality, and this is an indicator of someone who is equipped for leadership in the church as well. If you look at uh, descriptions of leadership in Titus and in First Timothy, those that are to be elders within the church are to be individuals that, that open up their homes for hospitality-type purposes, that are very quick to meet the needs of others, to serve others through their resources, to extend hospitality. Okay, So the, the elders and the leadership of the church are meant to set an example or a pattern of what this is supposed to look like. Okay, So Abraham demonstrates hospitality. Um, he indicates it to uh, us through the text here about what it looks like uh, to... Uh, to extend help to those in need or to extend an offering of hospitality to those uh, that we come in contact with. But I do believe as well the way that, that God in human form, I think here, shows up to fellowship with Abraham. It also gives us some insight into why uh, God refers to Abraham as his friend. Okay, In James chapter 2, verse 23... And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. Abraham is referred to as a friend of God in 2 Chronicles 27. Also in Isaiah 41, 8. He was called a friend of God. And I think this text here in Genesis 18 is a reason or an example of of how God viewed Abraham as a friend. The fact that he would show up in human form and sit down and have a meal with him. Eating with Jesus shows intimacy and friendship, right? Jesus extends this to Zacchaeus in the New Testament, uh, invites himself over, basically. Says, I want to come sit down and eat with you. Um, And then in Revelation chapter 3, Verse 20, in a spiritual sense, I believe Jesus takes this concept of eating a meal and friendship and extends that offer to all of us. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Salvation is not just a a get out of hell type card, right? It's a it's an extension of intimacy from our creator to the creation. That that God desires intimate friendship with us as his children. We see that playing itself out with Abraham. We see God showing up and having an intimate meal with Abraham. We see Jesus do that in the New Testament when he comes in human form as well. We see this spiritual extension here of of, of inviting Christ into our life and, and fellowshipping and eating with him. Uh, Revelation chapter 19, verse 7, is another picture of this. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deed of the saints. You go on to read there about the marriage supper of the Lamb, this intimate fellowship that believers will have with Jesus Christ one day. We can also see this picture in John chapter 15, though. Abraham's not the only one that has the opportunity to be called a friend of God. In John chapter 15, verse 12, this is after years of ministry with Jesus, his disciples eating that last supper with Jesus. Um, 
in uh, verse 12, it says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Then Jesus looks at his disciples and says, You are my friends. How or why? If you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. One of the indicators here of of someone who is a friend of Jesus is that he understands and knows what the father is up to. He knows the father's business. Abraham gets privy to that information, right? They have this conversation. They have this meal together. And as they're wrapping it up, Jesus, uh, or at least one of these visitors, I believe to be Jesus, informs him of the plans that God has to pour out wrath upon Sodom. Clues Abraham into these plans, the business of his father. Jesus includes his disciples in that. We as believers in the New Testament know what God's plans and business is, right? He's, he's given that to us in written form through the scriptures. We possess something that, that saints of old did not possess in full form like we do. We have the complete inspired word of God. He stands at the door and knocks. He invites us to, to welcome him into our life, uh, to feast with him, to fellowship with him, to have a friendship with him. Okay, so this is an example of a text that the New Testament relies upon, I believe, to call us to hospitality, but then also to understand the intimacy that's available to us with Jesus Christ, um, that the friendship that's available to us with Jesus Christ. All right, so a call to hospitality, but then what I really believe to be the important focal point of the text, a call to believe the impossible, a call to believe the impossible. As they're eating together and and Abraham has been faithful to extend hospitality here to these visitors. He stood by them under the tree while they ate. In verse 9, they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. And this would have been culturally acceptable, too, for the men to be in fellowship together. But oftentimes the wives were permitted to be close enough to hear the conversation, but not always able to contribute to the conversation. Okay, so she's close enough through the indication of Abraham to hear what is going on. Verse 10, the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old. They were advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure. Abraham and Sarah have come up upon an impossible situation. God has made promises that they don't humanly see how it could possibly happen. So a question I put in my notes. um, What is our normal response to impossible situations? Uh, It's to look for human solutions any way that we can. All right. And we've already seen this with Abraham. God makes a promise that seems humanly impossible. There's no way me and my wife are going to have a child. No way. How about Eleazar, my, 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 my servant that basically is functioning like an adopted child in my life. God, let's use him. Perhaps you, perhaps you're trying to communicate to me that Eleazar is the one that will receive all of these blessings, that he is the chosen one. God says, no. 
Abraham says, okay, you've promised it to me, but technically you've never promised it to Sarah. Maybe it's another woman that's supposed to have my child. And so he brings in Hagar as a concubine. And God says, no, these human solutions are not the answer to the promises that I've made. Nothing is impossible with God. And he's communicating this to Abraham and Sarah. We see this in other passages in scripture. Job 42, 2. This isn't a lesson that's easily learned by us, I believe. In Job 42.2, I know, Job says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Job says, I've come to understand that, that you can do all things. Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 17. Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You skip down to verse 27 of that same chapter. Um, Jeremiah 32, verse 27. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Behold, I am the Lord, or I am Yahweh, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? In Luke chapter 1, verse 37. I mean, this is even more of an impossible situation, right? You've got Abraham and Sarah who are old, but at least you have a male and a female who know what it takes to have a child. And they're saying, we're just too old. Like, this is impossible for us to have kids. The angel comes to Mary and says, you're going to give birth to the Messiah, right? And, and, and Mary's thinking, how is this possible? It's not that I have a man that's too old. It's, it's I'm not married to a man. Like, like, I'm not actively pursuing opportunities to have children, right? And in Luke chapter 1, verse 37 the angel says to her, behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Ephesians chapter three. Lest we think that we're capable of coming up with things that, that God can't do. Paul reminds us in Ephesians 3 verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. It's not just that God is capable of doing the things that we deem impossible. Paul says he's capable of doing the things that we can't even think of that we would think would be impossible. He's that type of God who's capable of all things. Nothing is too hard for him, right? Right? Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Right? My, my, my concerns and my lack of belief, will God raise up people in our church that can be pastors of church plants? Paul would echo and say, God can do far more than, than, the, than the puny things that you're wondering if he's capable of doing. He can do far more than anything we could ask or think, right? God, Jesus, these two visitors are communicating with Abraham and Sarah, and it's a call to believe the impossible. Abraham has responded with hospitality. Now he's called to, an, uh, to a new level of faith here, to believe things that he perceives to be impossible. Romans chapter 4 reminds us of, of Abraham's response, and what's glorious about this passage is that it teaches us that God possesses both the desires and the power to fulfill his promises in Romans chapter four, verse 20, a passage we've looked at several times through our studies here. 
No unbelief made him, Abraham, waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. We want to be those type of believers. I want every single person in our church to grow in their faith. And it is a process. We, we come to faith in Christ. We express faith in Christ. And then we start a journey of growing in our faith. It's sanctification as we learn to trust in God more and more. We trust in his promises more and more. We want to be the type of people that Romans 4 describes. People who, um, who, who no longer have unbelief in them. That they, they don't waver concerning the promises of God. That we become people who are fully convinced that God is able to do what he's promised. I want to be that type of individual. I want to be fully convinced that God is capable of doing what he's promised to do. Not just with lip service, but deep down in my hearts where unbelief lingers sometimes. I want to be an individual who is fully convinced that God can do what he promises to do. Is there anything impossible for God? Or is there anything that Scripture communicates is impossible? And I do believe that there are some things that, that, that Scripture communicates is impossible. Okay, Nothing's impossible with God, but there are some things that that language is used for that reminds us of some things about God. First of all, in uh, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4, it's impossible to restore those that fall away. In Hebrews chapter 6, 4. Uh, verse four, we'll start with, uh, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. And then having fallen, fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again, the son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. What that passage means, we don't have time to go into depth and explain it. I'm just going to give you kind of a quick summary. An individual who is exposed to the gospel, who understands the gospel, understands exactly what's being presented with the gospel, understands the presentation of Jesus Christ as the only sufficient sacrifice for sin. An individual who, who has come to that level of knowledge, they're, they're not lacking any knowledge, they're not lacking any, uh, anything that needs to have their faith placed in, they, they've got all of it, it's all on the table for them, and they reject it. We know that Jesus talks about there's a point in time where they can blaspheme the Holy Spirit, they can reject it to its fullest extent, and there is no hope of their salvation. Okay, We're not clued in as to when that might happen in the life of a believer, but we are warned and told that there can come a point where someone can reject it fully and can never be given the opportunity for repentance again because they've rejected it. Okay, It's also impossible for God to lie. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18, we're told. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We serve a God who makes promises, a God who, uh, for him, it is impossible for him to lie. We're also told in Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verse uh, 4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Okay, We can summarize every other religion into that statement. It is impossible for any effort of man to reconcile him to God. Impossible. The only way to be reconciled to God is through Jesus Christ. Through his perfect life, through his sacrificial death, through his glorious resurrection. The only hope for salvation is through Jesus Christ. It's impossible for any sacrifice, for any effort, for any good work, for any uh, sacrificial act by any human being to, to merit or to earn or to deserve 
God's salvation. Impossible. And then lastly, in Hebrews eleven six, it's impossible to please God without faith. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. We don't have to overcomplicate salvation, right? Rahab was an individual who demonstrates this. Old Testament, Rahab talking with the spies. I believe in your God and I believe he rewards those who seek him. I'm begging you, take me with you. Come in here, kill my city, destroy all the evil. Take me with you. Take me back to your God. I believe he exists. She acknowledges, she said, he's the creator of heaven and earth. He's the Lord of everything. And I'm, and I'm hoping and praying that what I believe about him is true, that he rewards those that seek him because I'm seeking him right now and I want to be a part of Israel, okay? It's impossible to please God without faith. All right, next question uh, there in your notes. Why does God work with impossible situations? An answer that John Piper gives, to magnify his sovereign grace and keep us in our humble place. To magnify his sovereign grace and keep us in our humble place. Remember, we said that God has picked Abram and Sarah, now Abraham and Sarah. He's picked these two individuals because they offer no human solution to this problem of needing offspring to produce a nation. Right? He picks a barren woman who, who was incapable of having kids from even her early years. He refuses these adopted heirs that, that Abraham would like to bring into the, to the fold. He rejects Abraham's, uh, or what would have been Sarah's stepchild, right? We're not going to let Ishmael be this guy. We're not going to let him be the promised offspring. He waits until they're reproductively dead. That they, they cannot have children. And then he begins to move in this impossible situation. Why? So that we see his sovereignty, we see his grace, and it keeps us in our humble place. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We've already said that God secures Sarah's presence here to hear this promise. He, he makes sure that she's close enough to hear this conversation. It's probably important to note that he uses her new name. Right here you've got two visitors that show up. And one of them says, where's Sarah? Not where is Sarai, her old name, but where is Sarah, her new name? That probably also lends itself to supernatural visitation here. That, that these individuals knew the new covenant name that God had given to her. God plans to give Abraham and Sarah a child. Um, and that's once again reiterated here. But it's also specified, lest we, lest we wonder, that Sarah truly is at a point where she cannot have children. It says in verse 11, Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. All right, so she's gone through that menopausal period. She is no longer producing eggs. She is no longer in a place where she can have children. You could bring in a surrogate father at this point, and, and no amount of effort 
would produce a child in her body from a human standpoint, from a natural standpoint. She is, she's, she's over it. She is done. She is incapable of having children. And this is when, begin, when God begins to move and to act in her life. God plans to give Isaac by a specific time. There's a timetable now, once again, recommunicated to Abraham and Sarah to increase their faith and trust. I think it's important to note here, too, again, that um, there's, there's at least question here as to whether Sarah laughed or not, right? So, so the indication here is that while Sarah can hear what's going on in this conversation, they either could not hear her or it was an internal response that would have been so quiet that she can actually try to argue that she didn't laugh, right? She, she laughs about it. She's, she's probably reconciling and saying these things in her mind. How can I be as old as I am and still have the pleasure of having a child? She's kind of questioning this in her mind uh, and laughs about it, but maybe, maybe to herself under her breath. And then all of a sudden she hears from the, from the, other, the other room, she gets called out for laughing here. I think it's a reminder to us that that God sees our unbelief even when we don't want to admit it. God sees our unbelief even when we don't want to admit it. Like Sarah, Sarah kind of bows up here and says, I didn't laugh about that. I'm not doubting you about that. And, and yet God says, no, you, no, you did laugh. All right? Like he clarifies. It's, it's not, oh, maybe I heard something else. Did somebody else laugh? Because I thought I heard maybe, maybe I heard it wrong. No, he says, no, you did laugh about this. You do have unbelief still in your heart about me being capable of doing this. And God reveals himself as one who knows our inward thoughts and knows our inward struggles. Psalm 139, verses 1 through 4. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together hebrews four thirteen. we serve a god who knows the inner workings of our heart and no creature is hidden from his sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account we can't hide things from god we can't hide our unbelief from god we can come here we can go to our accountability groups, we can go to our small groups, we can come on Sunday mornings, and we can present ourselves as one that never doubts God, that never has any unbelief, that has everything figured out, everything put together. We can present ourselves as one that it doesn't matter what circumstance comes into our life, we always have an answer, we always have a response of faith to it, but God knows when that's not true. God knows that's not always the case, and even if we fail to vocalize it, even if we fail to vocalize, here's some areas where I struggle to believe God, God still knows those areas. He calls Sarah out here and, 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 and I think used it as a point of conviction for her that she needed to reconcile the fact that she was still struggling to believe that God was going to do this. The glory of this is that God increases her faith and turns that laughter of unbelief into a laughter of joy. We'll see this when we finally get there. But in Genesis chapter 21, verse 6. And Sarah said, <clears throat> when, when Isaac is born, and Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone hears will laugh over me. <clears throat> and she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. This is, this is more of a laughter of joy now. 
I mean, she, she sees this promise to its fruition. She's holding the baby that's been promised to her. Um, and in her old age, at a point where she has no business nursing a child, um, it's as though she's talking and laughing as she talks. Here I was only nine months ago laughing at this concept that God could do this and, and really lacking belief. And here I am holding, holding, a, holding a child in my old age. Proof that nothing is too hard for God, that, that God is a God of the impossible. He turns her laughter of unbelief into laughter of joy. The question at stake for us in this whole passage, this whole chapter here, is can God create a covenant people against impossible human odds? Can God create a covenant people? Because that's what's at stake here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to build this great nation that's going to bless all other nations. I'm, I'm promising the Redeemer, the one that was promised in Genesis 3.15, the one that's supposed to reverse the curse. It's coming through Abraham and through his descendants. And so the question that's at stake, the tension that we should feel here in reading through Genesis uh, up to this point in 18. Can God create a covenant people against impossible human odds? And the answer is yes. Obviously, the answer rings true that yes, God is capable of doing this. Back in Romans chapter 4. Verse 13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs. Faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Not only to the inheritance of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. God called this covenant people into being in a place where no human effort could ever have produced it. What does that tell us? I think it's teaching us some things that we find in the New Testament. God is teaching us that by his grace, children of promise are born. Let me say that again. God is teaching us here that his covenant people, people that are truly uh, Abraham's descendants. And we learn in the, Old Te- in the New Testament that it's not just physical descendants of Abraham. That that doesn't mean that you're a child of promise. That the, that the promised descendants of Abraham are those that are produced not by natural means, but by supernatural means. The children of promise, the children of grace, are born supernaturally. The children of promise require supernatural birth. How do we, how do we see that in the New Testament? In John chapter 3, verse 5, God is, or Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, right? And he says in... Um, Verse 5, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. In Romans chapter 9, Verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. 
For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. All right, so there's this correlation here between children of the flesh and children of the spirit. What is, what is meant by that? We learn what that means in Galatians chapter 4. Paul takes the things that we've been learning about and gives us New Testament knowledge, New Testament understanding about these things. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. Okay, so we've got Ishmael and Isaac, and they're going to be compared and contrasted here. Verse 23, but the son of the slave was born according to the flesh. What does that mean? It means you took a fertile man and a fertile woman and you put them together and you had a natural child. Through human effort, a child was born. Okay, so Paul says uh, the, the son of the slave, how was he born? According to the flesh. While the son of the free woman was born through promise. What does that mean? It means you took an infertile man and an infertile woman who had no human capability of producing a child. And yet supernaturally a child was born. Supernaturally, Isaac was given to this couple. Verse 24. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. Okay, so Paul's going to take a narrative in the Old Testament and he's going to give some spiritual meaning to it. These women are two covenants, okay? They're not really two covenants. He's using them as an allegory, as an example, okay? As, a, um, as an illustration. These two women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Verse 28, Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as that time he was born according to the flesh, persecuted him who has been born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. All right. What what does that mean? What is what is that even talking about? Paul's taking these two individuals. Ishmael, born naturally. Isaac, born supernaturally. He takes these two these two stories and he throws them into the New Testament and he says, Any human effort, any natural human effort to reconcile yourself to God fails. It flops. You're in slavery to sin and you're in slavery to the law. You cannot, you cannot earn God's forgiveness. He says the only way salvation happens is supernaturally. It's a supernatural work of God through the Holy Spirit where we are reborn, where we are born again, as Jesus tells Nicodemus. We are sanctified and washed and renewed, not because of anything we have to offer God, not because we come with sacrifices or good works or efforts and say, here's what I have to cash in for my salvation. It's God seeking out sinful man and rescuing him from sin and sending the Holy Spirit to bring about that conviction and a supernatural birth takes place. That's what this story helps us to understand in the New Testament. That you took two people who in their own human effort could never produce a child. And yet a child is produced and it sets the standard for every other promised child moving forward. That in our effort, we can't produce 
salvation. But it's a work of God, just like Isaac was a work of God. In my notes, I put formation of a people of God for the sake of his name from all the families of the earth is not a human creation. Let me say that again. The formation of a people of God that work for the sake of his name, and this people comes from all the families of the earth, it's not a human creation. Luke chapter 18, verse 27. But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. That, 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 that statement is made in the context, when? Of a rich man who comes and says, what do I need to do to be saved? Jesus says, sell everything, come follow me. The man walks away and says, no, I, I don't want to do that. I've kept all the commandments, but I'm not willing to sell all my stuff if that's what it means to be saved. Jesus says it's really hard. It's, it's virtually humanly impossible for a rich man to go to heaven just can't happen and so that that discourages the the disciples right um they're they're confused by this and then they're concerned about it um and so it says in verse 26 those who heard it said then who can be saved if 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 this is virtually impossible then, then how do people get saved God says what's, what's impossible with man is, is, is possible with God because nothing's too hard for him. And I love, I love the fact that this story piggybacks right off of the Zacchaeus story. Because what would have been possible in our minds is that here you got a guy that presents himself as a good guy. He says, I've kept the commandments since I was born. I'm a good guy. Uh, what do I need to do to be saved? Like here's a guy who's asking for salvation. And God says, that, guy's, that guy can't be saved. He doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't understand what it takes. Well, well, can anybody be saved? Jesus says, yes. What's impossible with man is possible with God. Let's go, let's go meet Zacchaeus. So they go and meet this guy, Zacchaeus, who, who is not an individual that would claim that he's kept the law since birth. Here's a guy who, who steals and, and wheels and deals and, and, and has robbed people for money, right? So his wealth has not come from an honest, honest uh, day's work. It's come from deception. And here's an individual who doesn't have to be asked to give up stuff, right? It says that he goes home and has a dinner with Jesus. And by the time that dinner is over, he is giving away stuff and giving away more than he stole from people because he's been that radically transformed and changed. None of us could have a conversation over a meal with a rich man that would result in him getting rid of all of his stuff. That's impossible from a human standpoint. None of us in our own efforts could ever sit down with somebody that we wanted to see saved and present the gospel in such a great way that would result in that if the Holy Spirit's not presently working in his heart. The only explanation for a man sitting down with Jesus and having a meal and giving away all of his stuff is that a supernatural act took place. A supernatural birth. Just as impossible as Abraham and Sarah having a kid. A man named Zacchaeus who had stolen for all of his life is giving away stuff after a meal with Jesus. Through a supernatural union with Christ, we become part of the promised offspring of Abraham. So salvation means us becoming offspring of Abraham. The only way that happens is through faith. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ... There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, 
heirs according to the promise. Our application for today. Our summary was God makes great and precious promises to us and expects us to believe every one of them because nothing is too difficult for him to accomplish. Our application, we must seek faith to believe that God can work through any circumstance we deem too difficult for him. Okay? God makes promises. He expects us to believe them. Why? Because nothing is too hard for him. All right? What do we do with that? We need to seek out the faith needed to believe that God will work in every circumstance, especially those that we deem too difficult for him. How do we do that? How do we seek out faith? What does that mean? Well, thankfully, Romans 10 tells us how to increase our faith. Romans ten seventeen. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Our time in prayer, our time in God's word is designed to increase our faith. And specifically to increase our faith in areas that we doubt. We can pray for this type of faith. That's what we're about to do as we close it out. We can pray. We can, we can identify places where we lack belief. And we can say, God, I am, I'm having a hard time trusting you in this area. I need you to supernaturally increase my faith. Because the faith that I have was a gift from you to begin with. So I'm asking for an increased amount of faith and trust in you in a place where I am doubting. I believe, help my unbelief in this area. The application is we need to seek to believe that God can work through any circumstance that we deem too difficult for him. That starts with identifying the areas that we are deeming too difficult for him to work in. John chapter 14, we'll close with this verse as we prepare to pray. John chapter 14, verse 13 through 14. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, I do not believe that this text is giving us a, uh, a license to, to appeal to God for anything and everything, and he's, he's obligated to respond to it. I do believe that Scripture reveals his plans and his business, the things that he desires to do. He clued Abraham into what he desired to do with Sodom. He clued his disciples in. Jesus says, I've told you everything that my father plans to do that I'm aware of, that I know of. All right? We see that play itself out in the New Testament. The Bible says that we can pray and ask God for those things and that God will, God will do those things and accomplish those things for us. Go into our uh, Padlet now, things that, that we struggle with. I want you to, if you've had access to that, I want you to pull it back up because I'm going to invite you to pray for some of these things. And I've got these on the board, so if you don't have it in front of you, you can look at some of the things that people this morning are sharing as a point of struggle like i said we're going to keep this available um for you to continually add to and to continually reference back as a point of prayer what's what stands out to me about the multitude of the things that are listed here are things that that god has at least in a general sense promised to do right he's promised to do good for his children he's promised to save he's promised to save even the the most difficult individuals Right, we think about Saul who who murdered Christians, who was the antithesis of one that you would think, 
all right, that, that person's never going to be saved. Like, that person needs to, be, needs to be killed themselves. Like, that person needs to be experiencing justice for the things that they've done. Um, I think we're, we're, we're immune to the fact of thinking about how evil of a man Paul was and what God ended up turning him out to be. Um, and so uh, he, he alone stands as assurance to us that God is capable of the impossible because had we known him before his salvation, he would have been the impossible of the impossible, right? Um, I want to encourage you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for us, and I want to encourage you to pick out one or two of these things to pray for as well, realizing that these are mentioned by people in this room, um, things that they're struggling to believe, the things that, that God wants them to believe um, that he's capable of doing. All right, let's pray together. Father, we come to you and, and we praise you and thank you that you are a God of the impossible, that you are a God who, uh, who has never come across something that was too difficult to do. God, we thank you and praise you for your power, for your wisdom. We thank you for the promises of good intent towards your children. And God, I pray that what we've heard for so long would really ring true into the deepest crevices of our heart this morning. That you are a God who is capable of doing anything. And that you are a God who has promised to do much. So, Father, as I look through this list and I see some general concerns about your ability to save because of a lack of of seeing that happen, but then that ranging all the way down to specific people that, that may be deemed impossible at this point. God, I pray that you would remind us of the, the power of the gospel, even in our own lives. Father, I pray that we would be faithful to recognize that it, were it not for your Holy Spirit living inside of us, were it not for that seal of restraint upon us, that, that, that rebirth that we've experienced, that we too would fall into that category of an individual who who may seem impossible to be saved. God, we know that you're fully capable of saving individuals, especially those that, that seem impossible to save. We've referenced two this morning, your radical salvation of Paul, your radical salvation of Zacchaeus. God, help us to be reminded, though, that even in our own efforts with the gospel, that we cannot produce children of promise. God, help us to see the futile attempts by Abraham to work things out on his own. God, help us to rest and trust in the supernatural ability of the Holy Spirit to produce this type of salvation. Help us to know and trust that we could have the most awkward dinner conversation with somebody and we could, we could in our minds, mess up the presentation of the gospel in, in such a way that we feel like all we've done is confuse somebody and if the Holy Spirit is active and working, that that individual can be radically saved before our eyes. Because it's not about our effort and it's not about our, our will. It's all about your supernatural ability to produce offspring of Abraham. Father, we, we, we've examined the fact that you took, the, took a man and a woman who were as good as dead and you produced a child through them. Father, I pray that it would invoke a sense of hope in us that you have made promises about your church, that you desire to raise up church members who are equipped to do the work of the ministry, equipped to evangelize and to share the gospel in a powerful way that causes your kingdom to be added to. Father, I pray that uh, the vision that we've cast before our church, 
to add to our, our numbers through salvations, that you would empower our people to believe the glories of the gospel, to share them in a way where your Holy Spirit uses those presentations to save people and add them to this kingdom. Father, I pray that you would raise up people in our church that could extend the ministry of sovereign hope to the ends of the earth. Father, I pray that you would give us wisdom in the raising of our children in a, in a place that is becoming more and more corrupt around us. That before our eyes, agendas are being pushed that would seek to taint our children and their understanding of you. Father, help us to, to, to believe and to know that you are capable of, of saving our children and equipping us with the wisdom needed to guide them to the truths of the gospel. Father, I pray that as we lead today that all of our people would be challenged to look into their hearts and to examine areas that they are lacking belief in you. Things that they would deem, if they're honest with themselves, areas that may be too difficult for you to accomplish. Father, I pray that you would increase our faith in those areas, that through prayer and through being in your word, that faith would be produced as you've promised it would be. God, we want to be people that are fully convinced not just halfway convinced, not mostly convinced. Father, I desire for our church family to grow up into a membership of people who are fully convinced that you are capable of doing what you promised. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.